Hey guys, welcome to the Cultivate and Keep podcast. I'm Jeremy with my good friend Corey, and this is where we talk about what we are learning, what we are studying in God's Word, and what is new with our businesses. And today we have a super exciting guest. I know I say that every time, but today I'm stoked to who, about who we have on, so I will let Corey go ahead and intro him. Yeah, today's guest I am also very excited about. We've both sort of plowed through his book, uh, and we got connected through a mutual friend of ours, actually two mutual friends, Kevin Miller and Wes Fulkerson, uh, who we've had both had on the podcast as well. So um, another sort of extended friend and a friend of a friend who we're glad to welcome to the podcast. Um, so Marcel Becker, welcome to the podcast. And uh, I'm going to ask you a question to kick us off here in a second. But I wanted to also color this with a little bit of a preview because I felt like listening to some of your, your previous interviews and sort of you know hearing about you from Wes and then reading the book, I was like, man, this guy is massively undersold. So I wanted to give like a little bit of a preview just so people have a good amount of context sort of going into it so that what you say has more weight and sort of more context. Obviously, we won't give away all the, the details of the book because there's a lot of stories in there. It's really a page turner that both Jeremy and I really, really enjoyed, honestly. Um, but Marcel was a... Um, uh, first of all, he grew up here in San Diego in Oceanside. Uh, he bounced around to a few places between El Cajon and, and, uh, and Lakeside and, uh, and the shipyards, but he's a San Diego native, which we're excited about. Um, Marcel has had a, a really illustrious life in, in career with many, many stories, um, mainly sort of that the headline is from ex-con to Christian um, and everything in between there between uh, being a bouncer, uh, between being a sort of enforcer for uh, organized crime, cage fighting, um, being in and out of uh, in jail or in um, different sort of situations like that several times, um, solitary confinement. I mean, really the list goes on and on and on, eventually becoming a successful businessman as well, which I'm really excited to get to as well. But Marcel, glad to have you on the podcast and I appreciate you coming on here to talk with us. Well, th first of all, let me uh, thank you both for having me on the podcast. It's my privilege to be here and talk with you. Um, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Yeah, it's awesome to have you on. So it's funny because we know Oceanside, California, sort of, you know, North, North County, San Diego, today as a beautiful beachside town with big houses and there's a good amount of sort of wealth and opulence and it's a nice city. But it wasn't like that when you were growing up. Could you kind of set the stage and the context and the setting for what your upbringing was like? Yes, of course. So Oceanside um, is parked right next door to Camp Pendleton, which I believe is the largest Marine Corps base in, in the United States. And at the time that I uh, arrived at Oceanside, um, we were in the midst of the Vietnam War and Camp Pendleton was very, very active. And, and so quite literally, um, my days were, uh, you know, just filled with helicopters flying around. I mean, it literally sounded like the introduction to apocalypse now. Uh, just choppers every day, a lot of uh, maneuvers uh, going on. And in the 60s, there was a lot of other things that were happening um, you know, outside the war in Vietnam, here at home, there was also some uh, major things taking place. And we had uh, an outlaw motorcycle club uh, lived a few doors down in one direction. And then in the other direction, we had a uh, place that was occupied by the Black Panthers. And, you know, at that time, 
the neighbor, the neighborhood was was kind of uh, you know depressed so to speak. It, you know it was not the, uh, the gentrified oceanside that we know and love today. And um, I uh, affectionately refer to the neighborhood that I grew up in as the, as the projects. It was kind of uh, nestled between the uh, sewer treatment plant and the railroad tracks is where where we were at and all this stuff going on at that time. Yeah, I mean, a very, very different time. Um, and I'm, I'm sure with the, with the family life and the situation and a lot of the poverty, especially just the time in the United States back then, what you weren't dealt the best hand, so to speak. Um, how did that influence sort of the path that you went down and sort of the, the, the track and the path that you went down very early on in life? Well, I tell you, um, you know, it uh, it was it was a difficult time at those times, and and um, you know, my my older brother and I talk about, you know, uh, what influences because we took two totally different paths. Um, my we my my brother uh, at one time was very ill, and uh, our folks. Uh, um, took him to go get uh, tre treatment at a clinic and uh, he was refused uh, care because we couldn't afford to pay. Uh, at that time, that was uh, that was legal. And so that kind of, you know, framed for him that, hey, he, he never wanted to be poor again. And that put him on a path. And I mean, he was hugely successful as, as an adult, uh, education and everything like that. I, on the other hand, uh, was influenced more by my father, and and my father um, was a, a World War II vet from the uh, German side. He was in the Wehrmacht uh, on the Russian front, and I would say that my dad was probably the epitome of post-traumatic stress disorder before it was recognized in a clinical sense. I think back then they called it shell shock. But, uh, you know, he had some tough times on the Russian front, and, and unfortunately, it, it scarred him uh, deeply, and uh, that kind of spilled over onto us in, in the family. So he was a very um, brutal uh, guy, uh, was very quick-tempered, uh, and uh, he, he was very violent, and, and I, I caught uh, a lot of that. So for me, what really shaped uh, my direction and my path wasn't to poverty so much, but it was I never wanted to be afraid of anybody anymore like I was afraid of my father. I never, ever wanted to fear another living, breathing human being again. That was tattooed on my brain. Um, it, at one point in your book, you mentioned that when you were a little kid, you made a vow to never be afraid of anyone ever again. And I think at that point in the book, uh, you were in um, a prison facility, and I believe there was a few things that went down in the prison. And uh, you kind of said, like, that decision led to me basically being, you know, a hard or a bad guy in prison that now hurts people, right? I'm someone that people fear. I'm someone that is respected. And it kind of seems like in the book, you kind of wanted that, right? Like you wanted to get to a point, a point to where uh, people feared you and they admired you, uh, but not like a, not like a fear that's, I guess, a good fear, but a fear that is, wow, people are scared of me. They don't, they don't want to get in my way. And I, I just, I was curious if you could maybe just, I guess, continue the story of, uh, you know, you mentioned like uh, how your dad 
uh, influenced the way you were you were raised, kind of influenced the way you thought about things and the kind of decisions you made early on. Now, tell us how that kind of led to um, some of the decisions you made early on in your young adult life. Um, I think that was when you became a you know a collector. Then that led to some other um, crime activities, and then into prison. If you want to kind of take us along that path. Yeah. So that was a, a kind of a progression, you know. And and the, the first thing that um, that I wanted to do was is I want I wanted to learn how to fight, to be able to defend myself, and not and not uh, be a victim anymore. You know, that was the preeminent goal for me. And uh, at the time, I had uh, some friends of mine that, you know, their, their dad was a Vietnam vet, and he was very uh, proficient in the martial arts. And so he was training his sons in the martial arts. And uh, it was kind of a Cobra Kai type uh, situation. If you remember the Karate Kid, he wasn't uh, the best kind of guy, didn't really honor the arts, at least not the ones, the parts that you wanted to. And I kind of, uh, you know, fell right into that. And and you're right. You know, my objective, uh, Jeremy, was to become the baddest of the bad. I wanted to be feared. I did not want to be uh, the guy that was constantly, you know, getting beat up and being afraid. I, I wanted to be the guy that was feared. And so I pursued that uh, relentlessly. And I studied uh, martial arts and, and uh, I was uh, competing in in underground uh, fights, you know, today, uh, you know, we see the UFC and the cage fighting, as you, if you will, uh, in the octagon, and it's become quite fashionable. But uh, 50 years ago, or excuse me, 40 years ago, when I was doing this, uh, it wasn't quite fashionable. In fact, most of that cage fighting stuff was still underground. A lot of illicit gambling going on and things like that, and and that's. Uh, that's when I got involved in it, and that's when, when I was doing it, and um, that's when I was kind of discovered by, uh, you know, the elements from the dark side, as I'll refer to it. You know, uh, there, those guys uh, were promoting those fights. They were, you know, a lot of gambling was going on in those fights, and, and uh, in fact, that's, that's how I got the nickname Flash, is because I used to knock people out in a flash. And so uh, it wasn't long before one of those uh, guys, you know, came up to me after a night of fights and he says, you know, uh, you know, you want to make some money. And he was offering an opportunity to, uh, to make some money uh, using the same skill sets, but uh, outside of the cage and, and on the streets. And, and he was uh, talking about uh, doing collections, you know, and, and uh, that's... Uh, that's how I got my start in the uh, collections and closing delinquent accounts uh, underworld, if you would. Yeah, that's the that's the, the polite way to, to put it. Um, this might sound like a strange question, but were you nervous at all? Or did you second guess the first time that you were sort of looped into that and agreeing to, you know, going and, you know, I mean, were you expecting some sort of confrontation that you would have to use force in that scenario did it seem strange at all or was it just sort of you know well i need to survive i need i need to get money to eat and i'll do whatever it takes i think that it was more of uh, at that particular uh, snapshot in time Corey said you know i really didn't care you know i was more focused on demonstrating that this is who i was that i was a force to be reckoned with that there were no challengers and i really didn't you know, even give it 
a thought as to, you know, what am I doing? Where am I going with this? It never even occurred to me. It's just a natural progression. Hmm. Um, a thought occurred to me while you were, while you were going through that story that it's interesting that both you and your brother pursued safety, but just two completely different ways. Your brother through money and not wanting to be poor so that he could always provide for himself and not get denied service if he was injured or sick, for example. And you pursued it, pursued it through being feared and having physical ability and sort of being someone who couldn't be pushed around or bullied. Exactly. I was curious. Um, one of my questions yeah. was thinking about the decision you made to, to not be afraid of anyone ever again. Uh, and it, it seems like that led you to like one extreme, kind of like Corey just mentioned. But I was curious, like in the moment, I think looking back at, back at it now, you probably see like the, you know, the unbalance that there was. But in the moment, did you ever think like, hmm, there might be a better way to be, you know, to, to go about things or there might be a better way to to be strong and to be a fighter and be someone that people fear, but at the same time that I'm not literally going out and, and collecting people's debts. Like, did you ever think about that balance in a moment or was it kind of like, I just don't care. I'm just going to do what I have to do. I think uh, the trouble was, uh, Jeremy, is that I fell into this uh, very quickly and I enjoyed huge success from the onset. And so very quickly did I realize, um, you know, hey, there's a lot of money to be made here. Uh, in fact, um, I graduated, you know, from, you know, going and collecting uh, for somebody to actually buying debt for pennies on the dollars and stuff like that. So, I, I mean, it just, it, it went uh, very, very quickly. And I think that the, the success, the, you know, the, the, the fast cars, the, you know, the money and all that kind of stuff, it was intoxicating. And, and, and you know, it never uh, even occurred to me that I might ought to be doing something different. I felt that, you know, this is what I was made for. Okay, so at this point, uh, you're, what, early 20s, right? I think 18, 19, early 20s. Uh, you're kind of getting to a bad scene. And kind of uh, give us the path of how that led to uh, uh, being conv convicted of, um, of crimes and going into prison. So I, um, you know, I was, I was in the mix, as I uh, affectionately referred to it there, you know, and, and uh, someone, someone uh, came to me with a, uh, a big... Uh, you know, uh, debt, and it was probably the biggest one that um, that I I uh, had before, and it was, uh, and so uh, the the offer I was made was, hey, you know, go get this money. It was a six-figure debt, and um, you know, we need to preserve our reputation in industry. We can't afford to let this go unaddressed. Do what you gotta do. But um, you keep the money, but we have to have, you know, our integrity and our reputation intact. In you know, we can't let this go. So uh, what this involved was, um, you know, going after some folks and convincing them to pay. And, you know, when we went to uh, talk to these folks, um, they had uh, some young ladies with them. And they were all, you know, uh, doing drugs and partying and 
carrying on and stuff like that. And we kind of separated the boys from the girls and we told the girls, hey, look, you know, here's here's your options. You can either come to California and party like rock stars and and do all of this fun stuff that you guys are doing or or you can be bound, gagged and kidnapped. You pick which one you want it to be. But we're we're here and we're going we're we're here for the money. These guys need to go get our money and you need to hang out until we get the money back. So how that is up to you, but this is what's happening. And so they uh, chose party like rock stars. And so um, eventually um, it was uh, reported that we had kidnapped these uh, young ladies. Um, but when everything came out into the light of day, they freely admitted that uh, they chose to go with us and party and hang out. But that was not before there was uh, considerable headlines and law enforcement action and so on and so forth. And so for my first uh, and, and because it started out as a kidnapping, it didn't end that way. But uh, the FBI was involved and and so on and so forth. So at the end of the day, after all was said and done, I find myself with um, my first uh, conviction and I'm doing uh, federal time in Oklahoma for possession of an illegally made firearm, which is uh, a sawed off shotgun. That's what uh, I wound up pleading guilty to because I had one of those in my possession when I was arrested. And uh, that was the uh, first uh, federal term uh, that I did there in El Reno, Oklahoma, was uh, as a result of that. So that was the start of kind of a life in, in prison, um, so to say. Uh, how many years on and off were you in prison? Well, you know, I did it on the installment plan, you know, and from from the, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the time I was uh, 16 until my, I would say, early uh, 30s, you know, I was either in prison or trying to get there for that about 15 year yeah. span. I think uh, I'm, I think my record out was uh, during that time was 11 months. I think it was the longest wow. I was on the streets. Um, now, I'm someone, so I love watching cops. I love like, you know, anything on Netflix that has like, you know, uh, the uh, behind the scenes prison uh, footage. Like, I love that. It's super fascinating. So I have a question that's honestly like mostly for my entertainment, but hopefully people will find it interesting. But I was curious if you had any story, interesting stories or things that happen maybe in your time uh, as a as a debt collector or, or just in prison throughout, you know, that span of 15 years or so. Um, and hopefully a story that's not in your book, maybe a story that you just want to share that's interesting or maybe it was a scary situation or um, it, it could have no value to the podcast besides entertainment <laughs> but I was just curious on anything that you thought would be inter interesting to share well you know um, things were different back then and uh, you know the, the penal system wasn't quite as sophisticated as as it uh, as it is um, today you know there wasn't a camera in every corner and you know uh, things like that and so uh, I mean literally the the inmates ran the asylum back then, and, and we enjoyed it, too. But one of the things that's an interesting story is that uh, when we were in uh, El Reno, Oklahoma, uh, and uh, we, right as part of the prison, there was a, what they call a prison industry. And that prison industry manufactured bunks and lockers and stuff for, for the army. 
and um, and inmates were employed at you know wage of uh, next to nothing. You know, I think it was a dollar an hour back then is what they were paid uh, to work in these prison industries. And uh, what we did one time was when um, the there was an opportunity for uh, the guards who watched us who were not in the prison industry, but worked in compound mechanical services where we maintained the institution. We had the opportunity uh, unsupervised for two weeks to um, literally steal a bunch of metal from the prison industry side and build weight equipment for the uh, convicts on the yard. And we were able to take that two-week time frame and build a bunch of bench presses and incline presses and lat pull-down machines and everything. We had our friends in the paint shop paint it up, and we got it out to the yard with no one being the wiser. And uh, about a month later, the warden walked the yard and um, asked, where did all this new weight equipment? Because it was beautiful, Jeremy. It was powder-coated, you know, baby blue looking great. He says, where did all this weight equipment come from? And the guy that managed the yard said, well, hey, it's those, those uh, bikers over in Compound Mechanical Services. They uh, took all this scrap metal and put this stuff together. And he goes, wow, that's great. I want to reward those guys for being such good convicts and good citizens, so we're going to give each one of them an award of 45 days of meritorious good time. So uh, I uh, received an award of meritorious good time for stealing thousands of dollars worth of steel from the federal prison industries <laughs> and turning it into weight benches for the convicts. <laughs> that's, that's funny. Entertaining that's, story that's, for you. that's a good story. Uh, um, <laughs> I was wondering how you got so big. There's a couple of yeah, pictures dude. in there, and I was impressed. Yeah, I was. I think that was that uh, federally funded government-sponsored fitness program. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> I had another question that, as you were talking, I kind of thought of. Um, but it seems like in your book, and even just kind of speaking now, that uh, it seems like you kind of alluded to several of the reasons um, why you went to prison for you know various different times. It kind of seems like uh, almost like you chose it, or like you. Um, you weren't like fully guilty for some of the crimes that were pinned on you. Like you just mentioned like the, um, the kidnapping, for example, like you said, those girls chose to go with you. Right. And then you chose to plead guilty on the, the shotgun offense. Um, I, I was just curious, like, uh, I guess my question would be like, why can you, I guess you, can you expand on that more? Like, why would you not fight that? Or why, um, like, why do you feel like you weren't, like you weren't guilty, but yet they were trying to pin these things on you. It seemed like they were trying to find reasons to get you in prison. Well, um, in the end, you're correct, Jeremy. They were trying to find uh, reasons to get me in the uh, prison. Uh, it didn't start out that way, but uh, over that decade of uh, reign of terror that I had there, I it definitely uh, I drew the attention of the law enforcement community, uh, both federal and state. But when I first went to prison, um, the first time I was kind of like an independent operator, right? But while I was there, I met some friends and uh, I wound up, uh, you know, becoming aligned a with a, a motorcycle club. Um, you know, what one would refer to as a 1% organization, 1% outlaw biker organization. And, and then um, once I, I pursued 
that lifestyle, you know, then uh, things started gaining quite a bit of momentum because now things were a lot more sophisticated, more organized. It wasn't just one, you know, uh, crazy guy out there doing his own thing. Now, now it was uh, a lot more to it. And, and um, with that, you know, I, I, uh, I, I got a lot of notoriety in the wrong areas. And it got to a point in time where, you know, the uh, takes an enormous amount of uh, money and effort to uh, put someone on trial and, and convict them. So 90% of the time, there is no trial. What winds up happening is the old negotiating plea bargain stuff. And, and usually uh, nine times out of 10, you know, their um, folks uh, are, are guilty. And they're, they're guilty, maybe not to the degree of the charges that they received, but somewhere in there, there's a middle ground and someone's willing to sign up and say, yeah, okay, you know, I'll plead guilty to that and agree to the amount of time you do and stuff like that. And that's, I, I did that several times. But the uh, the last time um, that uh, I was uh, put on uh, on trial and arrested and charged, uh, I was not guilty. That that at that time, that final time. Uh, I was I was the target. I was the target of a of a multi-agency task force with the express uh, intentions of taking me down and making sure that uh, you know I um I got locked up. Now, mind you, uh, for good reason, right? These guys, uh, you know, I wasn't John Q. Citizen, right? The choir boy. I mean, they they uh, they came after me for good reason. Um, they didn't do it right, but they came after me for good reason and. And uh, they they uh, pursued me, and the, and the the last time I wound up doing a, a prison term, uh, I was truly uh, not guilty, and it goes into that in the book how that kind of transpired. But um, but uh, what uh, wound up happening as a result of them uh, not achieving the uh, the the target uh, conviction, you know, which was would have been a uh, 27 to life year prison sentence, um, you know, they, they sent me to an institution where they knew I would have trouble with the population because it was, they sent me to a place that was predominantly occupied by a rival uh, motorcycle gang and, and that, uh, that created, created some uh, major challenges for, for me surviving that. Yeah, so I kind of wanted to, uh, Corey, have a question. I was just going to say, um, I, I thought it was interesting because I, I was wondering while I was reading through a lot of these stories that I was curious if you found that, re you know, retrospectively now looking back on it, if sort of like this whole theme of sort of um, more being guilty by association rather than guilty of the crimes that you committed or did not c commit ended up being a blessing in disguise for a number of reasons maybe it was because you know i know that um sort of towards towards the end of your your last stint in prison uh you didn't you knew you didn't you couldn't go back to do anything else because the next one would be sort of the the three strikes rule where then you'd be you know any conviction would be uh life in prison um and so sort of you you get these light convictions and or sort of you know god has you in there to sort of prevent you from doing something possibly worse in the future 
uh, or even you mentioned things like, you know, you, uh, you never really had a heavy stint with something like meth, like a really heavy drug because you spent all that time in, in prison. But I, was, I, I could be assuming too much. So I was wondering if you could give some color to looking back in your time in prison now, given the context of how you got there, do you see it as a blessing in disguise or still sort of um, unfortunate, wrong, uh, and or they were out to get you more than they should have been? No, I think uh, hindsight being 2020, um, you know, the good Lord was looking out for me as good as I would let him, you know. I mean, I, I uh, the road I was on, uh, Corey has uh, only but two destinations. It's either the penitentiary or it's the cemetery. And, and you know, um, I was working real hard to get to either one of those spots really quickly. And, and there were times that um, it seemed like, uh, you know, I, I would uh, time and time again, you know, dodge a bullet and not wind up with a bunch of time or not wind up dead, you know, I mean, multiple times, you know, I, it seems like I would just skate by. And it got to the point where, you know, I I'd built up, uh, you know, a, a record. And then in the uh, late 80s, like uh, a couple of things happened, we mentioned earlier, um, in, in the late 80s, you know, the, 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 people were fed up with it and they started passing some really heavy anti-crime statutes and and in fact you know i qualified for the three strikes law before they ever even thought of it i was already you know a candidate um i had met the requirements and then in in and that's in the state of california and then and then in, in 1987 you know, the federal government passed what they call minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines. And that kind of, you know, th those were so harsh that there were actually several judges that resigned over the passage of those minimum mandatory sentencing guidelines, but it, it removed all their discretion from the case. I mean, it was basically a, a graft, you know, here's your criminal history, here's your offense level, you know, go up two, go across three, and that's how much time you're going to do. And the judges didn't have any discretion, no extenuating circumstances, none of, none of that. And so several judges resigned in protest, didn't do anything that the, the laws passed. But I found myself, um, you know, reading all this stuff uh, during my final prison term. I'm reading about all these changes to these statutes and these laws and, and realizing that if I get one more conviction, doesn't matter whether it's state or federal, it'll be forever for me. I would, I would be locked up without the possibility of parole for the rest of my life, according to both the state statutes and the federal statutes. So that, that, was, uh, that was a pretty significant crossroads for me. And I, you know, like I say, I'm watching this news unfold as I'm serving my final prison term. I'm seeing these laws go into full force and effect. And, um, and you know, I was really at that time, uh, you know, taking inventory as of, uh, you know, exactly, you know, how much did this uh, cr continuing criminal enterprise mean to me? How much did this allegiance to this motorcycle club mean to me? 
I mean, it was a fair amount of uh, soul searching at that time um, when when all that stuff uh, happened. I was really, really, you know, evaluating what the way forward would be. Yeah. Um, I kind of wanted to, to fast forward a little bit. So, uh, you know, a good chunk of 15 years or so in and out of prison. Fast forward to, I think it's your early 30s. Uh, you get out of prison, and then your ex-wife or ex-girlfriend at the time uh, comes and uh, brings you, I think it was two kids, right, and says, hey, I've been taking care of these kids for the last five years. Here you go. It's your turn. And she walks away, and she leaves. So I kind of have uh, part one and two to this question. Part one is, uh, in, in your book, you mentioned, like, this was the major turning point in your life. Like, when you realized that you were the one solely responsible for these kids, that caused you to kind of change your whole life around. So Part one of my question is, uh, if it wasn't for that, like let's say you didn't have any kids or, you, you, you know, your wife didn't bring you these kids to take care of, like, do you think your life would have changed or do you think you would have continued down this road? Uh, and then part two is, can you kind of just explain like the next, you know, series of events from changing your life around, getting out of the club, getting a job and then going into business? So um, as I uh, talked about, you know, during that last prison term, I was really taking inventory, taking stock of the situation, and you know, evaluating my options, and none of them looked good. And so, when uh, my ex-wife showed up on my doorstep within 60 days of my release and said, "Hey, here are the kids. I've had them for the last five years while you've been running off playing convict. Now it's your turn." And at that time, you know, she was still deep in her addiction and, uh, and, and really uh, shouldn't be parenting anyway. Uh, th that was the final, you know, nudge, if you will, straw that broke the camel back or whatever you want to call it, that, that definitely pushed me into, hey, I am leaving this life and I'm starting a new one. That was the final catalyst. Now you have to realize there's quite a, a bit of um, more to the story, and that is that uh, my parents were both immigrants. As I mentioned, my dad fought for the Germans in World War II. Both my parents came over after the, the war. I didn't have any family in this country. I didn't have anybody that I could turn to for support. So I have these two kids. And um, I have another son with uh, another gal that, um, that uh, also. And so here I am, you know, faced with being an instant parent. But if there's anything that I fail at, like I don't, like say, for example, if I get a prison term and do life without those two kids, they become wards of the state. They become orphans. They, they, they no longer, you know, have any, no aunties or grandma or anybody to go to. It's, you know, drug addicted mom whom incidentally, I, you know, from that day she dropped the kids off. I never saw her again till, till the day uh, we buried our son. That was the first time I'd seen her um, in, in uh, his entire lifetime. So, uh, you know, couldn't couldn't count on her. Didn't have any family. It was either me or they become orphans, and um, I wasn't going to let that happen. So that that was the final last straw. You know, first all those statutory things occurred, all this other stuff happened, and then I became uh, an instant single parent. 
and it was a uh, you know cannot fail situation. So that was uh, plenty of motivation for me to get it right and then uh, you know pursue uh, a new life with uh, with uh, conviction. And and I I went after that pretty hard and. And I write about this in the book. You know, I wind up in um, in the shipyards because uh, shipyards was the only place at the time that I could, uh, you know, get a job with my record. You know, I, I had this big empty uh, work history on my resume. You know, and of course I put in there, um, you know, that I worked for the CDC, the California Department of Corrections, or the Federal Bureau of Prisons. But when you put down your wage, uh, you know, they knew what side of the fence you were on. You know, so. Uh, it was uh, it was a big uphill hurdle. I had no experience. I was in my early 30s. I had no career experience in in any anything uh, other than doing dirt. And um, I started out in an entry level position in the shipyards because it was the only place that would hire me. And I, uh, in order to um, pay the bills, I even bounced a strip club a couple nights a week just to uh, make sure I could I could uh, pay the bills. Yeah. What well, one of the um, one of the interesting bits I I was appreciative that you included in the book was sort of what it was like to leave that life. And I was I was curious if you can kind of expand a little bit on what it's like to leave a lifestyle of crime, especially organized crime. And I think you mentioned in the book it's usually sort of blood in, blood out, and it's not something you can just be like, "All right, guys, thanks for the fun ride and <laughs> peace out." You don't just get to leave anytime that you yeah. want. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it was like to leave and to actually leave for good as well. Yeah, so Corey, that's a good question. And, and um, I'm going to be careful what I say here uh, for obvious reasons. But, um, you know, amongst the, uh, the street gangs, you know, you have this blood in, blood out uh, mentality amongst those folks, and it's a big deal and so on and so forth. And amongst the, the more sophisticated organizations and the more sophisticated enterprises, um, you know, they kind of want you totally committed and they need to count on your commitment at the highest levels. Literally, your life is on the line. And so if you don't want to contribute at that level, believe me, they want to know. And they want to know because they want you um, to socialize that and get out because they know they can't count on you, right? So, you know, they're, they're not going to, they're not going to, um, you know, uh, give you a beat down or, or, or whatever for leaving, you know. Um, now, there are times when, when folks uh, on their way out can be treated uh, poorly but that's usually uh, for uh, conduct unbecoming. You know, it's not for saying, hey, I can't do this anymore. I got custody of these kids and I got to take care of these kids. And, you know, that's you. That's not, uh, uh, how would you say, in their eyes, uh, a shortcoming in character. You know, that's a matter of fact. This is what happened. And as long as, you know, you you uh, are, are known that, you know, you're not... Um, you're not uh, doing any ill will to the organization. You have what they call you're out good, right? You're out out in good standing. 
and if you you know if you have uh, tattoos you can get a outdate tattooed on your on your tattoo in this date out that date that's that's uh, how it can be now if if you if you're out bad like they say for conduct unbecoming or something like that uh, in, in some cases, uh, you know what, those tattoos might be covered up in their entirety. So any, any sign that you were ever involved with the organization is erased in some way, shape, or form. And then, of course, you know, if, uh, the, if you did some, something really, really uh, poorly, well, I'll, I'll let you conclude on your own what would happen in that regard. But they, nobody sees from you or hears from you again, so to speak, you know. But that, that's, uh, that's a tough time. Uh, but for me, at the time that I did that, you've got to understand, I was saying goodbye to the only family that I ever knew and loved. Um, and, and it was a very, very difficult time for me to make that transition. And in fact, um, I didn't, uh, I didn't uh, talk to anybody that I knew was in any way, shape, or form involved in the mix, as I refer to it, uh, for, for, for five years. It was five years before I ever uh, talked to somebody from that previous life again. I worked very, very hard to put a huge amount of distance between me and that uh, previous life. I didn't want to have anything from there spill over onto my kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, very, very admirable. It's uh, so it's it's one thing to sort of be able to leave that life behind successfully. It's another to then go and be very successful, actually, in a whole sort of new life, uh, a second life, if you will, now in, in the world of business and uh, and working for uh, or being a, a defense contractor or working with the Navy and in, in the shipyards. And so I was curious if you can kind of just give us an overview of sort of how you rose up the ranks. Um, what it was like being in that business and how you were able to sort of uh, become take management and leadership positions and um, and sort of what success looked like to you at that time. Sure, Corey, that's a uh, it's a big ask, but uh, I'll try and give Sorry. you read about the next version. All right, so you know, I was very uh, committed to to turning my life around and and genuinely. Um, you know, becoming something my kids could be proud of, right? I was really, really committed to that. I was also committed to the responsibility of being a parent in every uh, shape, uh, way, shape, and form. And it was very obvious to me very quickly that um, the uh, the more that you could uh, add value to the organization, the more uh, value you could get from the organization. It's quite, I mean, it was a direct connection, you know. And so um, I worked very, very hard to uh, to learn and train. And there's one thing about the, the waterfront back in those days in a pre-September 11th environment, you know, and uh, we didn't have the challenges that we have today trying to get ex-offenders uh, working on the waterfront uh, since September 11th, that changed the whole landscape. Uh, and now there's, you know, background checks that uh, the bar is very, very high and it's very difficult for an ex-offender to get a job in, in the, the defense industry for the, those reasons. But prior to that, 
um, those barriers didn't exist. And um, I was able to uh, really uh, focus on my career. And But the, the, the waterfront industry in general is kind of a, you know, it's a rough and tumble industry. It's, it's dirty, it's dangerous. Um, 40 years ago, it was a lot more dangerous than it is today. Today, you know, uh, we've partnered with OSHA. We've done a lot of things to protect our population. But back then, you know, it wasn't unheard of for for a person or two a year to get killed working in, in, in the ship repair industry. Uh, and so it didn't attract the creme de la creme of society, so to speak. You know what I mean? Those folks were finding jobs uh, that were a lot cleaner and a lot safer. And so what that did is that creates opportunity on the waterfront. So if you if you uh, had um, any kind of, you know, uh, uh, snap in your game, for lack of a better uh, analogy, uh, you know, your company would recognize that and they would invest in you. They would train you. They would teach you because the more you knew, the more valuable you became to them. The more valuable you became to them, the more they would pay you. I figured that relationship out uh, very quickly in my uh, career. And so I worked very hard from the onset to be able to elevate my game on the waterfront. And I probably uh, enjoyed one of the most rapid ascension from an entry level laborer to a program management team member that was managing multi-million dollar you know, ship modernizations and conversions on the San Diego waterfront. And I was able to do that very quickly. I did that in, in a matter of, uh, I think, six to eight years with one company. And then um, what happened was is that uh, that growth came to a screeching halt and I hit a glass ceiling when that company was acquired by a mid-level private equity uh, firm. And at that time, um, the uh, place I was at in management, in order, I got passed over for the next position promotion a couple of times. And the reason I was passed over is because, you know, the private equity firm didn't have the same promote from within, grow from within philosophy as, as the private owners uh, did uh, prior to. And so the folks that they were looking to promote into that position that I was going for, their expectation was that there was a fair amount of formal education behind that person, maybe some uh, military experience, uh, command at sea. I mean, several things that uh, my resume simply just did not support. I mean, you know, some folks go to Penn State. Well, I went to the state Penn, you know, different uh, resume, education nonetheless. <laughs> But uh, it became very evident to me, though, that my uh, career advancement in uh, a mere eight years was coming to a screeching halt. And so I had uh, the decision to make is that, you know, do I want to uh, spend, uh, if I'm lucky, the next two decades doing what I'm doing today? If I'm unlucky, the next three decades in this position with no measurable growth or advancement except for the occasional cost of living increase. Was I prepared to do that? The answer was absolutely not. I was not prepared to do that in any way, shape or form. Um, I, I needed to, to continue and build on the momentum that I was enjoying. And so um, I did uh, what you know, folks at the time told me was a very risky move. 
but relative to the risk that, uh, as you know, I was accustomed to taking, you know, it wasn't risky at all. I wasn't risking 25 to life. I wasn't risking getting shot in the back of the head and found in the ditch. None of those risk factors were in this at all. What I was doing is just moving from a big prime contractor to a smaller subcontractor. And I knew this smaller subcontractor because I'd already been working with them uh, in a couple years in a prime sub relationship. And I knew that they had some challenges running their company because, you know, quite honestly, Corey, those guys, they couldn't manage their way out of a public restroom at the time with two hands and a treasure map. I mean, it was just awful, but they had a lot of workers. And that's, you know, how our relationship was for the two years prior to me going over there is that, you know, they would, I would help them manage their projects to successful conclusions. And they brought their, you know, 30 or 40 guys with them. And that's, and that was how the relationship was uh, spawned. And from there, when I hit that glass ceiling, you know, I went to the management of that organization and said, Hey, you know, why don't you let me come over here and help you uh, with your company? And I, I, uh, and, you know, instead of just having a position in, uh, or a job, I wanted a position in the company if I reached certain um, performance milestones and certain benchmarks. I actually wanted a position in the company. And um, I didn't want to be at risk again for what just happened to me at the other outfit. You know, the place gets sold out from under me. And then all of a sudden, my future folds up like a house of cards. So I was trying to negotiate a more uh, solid future. And the two uh, majority interest holders uh, sat me down and they said, well, everything you're suggesting sounds really, really good. And we'll take you up on your offer and we'll give you exactly what you're asking for if you achieve those performance benchmarks. Uh, just one thing you need to be aware of, you've got 90 days to make this operation sound or we're going bankrupt. So that was like, oh, wow, you know, but uh, after I caught my breath, you know, I did some quick assessment, mental assessment, and I realized, you know, I could see where they were hemorrhaging money because I've been working with these guys for the last two years. Now, let me just give you guys are both businessmen. You're both entrepreneurs. I know this, right? So you guys know overtime kills, right? Overtime, you know, just hemorrhages money. Well, these guys, at some time in their infinite wisdom, they decided that everybody enjoyed working a four, 10-hour, four-day work week, four, 10-hour days. Um, and instead of working a five-day work week like the, the rest of the waterfront worked, well, that's that's probably okay in some cases, but if you're working in an industry that generally works seven days a week anyway, because you are working on warships and these warships, you know, you don't get a, a, a rain delay contract extension. These ships need to deploy. So when they're supposed to complete, they have to complete. And if that requires working overtime to get that done, then that's what you do. So this company, by having that four day uh, work week, they essentially took uh, and made uh, uh, three overtime days instead of two, you know, and so they were just hemorrhaging money with overtime. So one of the first things that we did was get their overtime uh, under control and that helped them with their cash and 
very quickly, uh, we were able to stave off uh, bankruptcy. And in the uh, first year uh, of being there, uh, we were able to um, achieve the goals that I had set out for the first year. And by the end of year one, I owned 5% of that company. And by the end of year two, we, uh, I owned 10%. And uh, by the end of year three, I started uh, working with um, a couple of my partners to buy out, start buying partners out. And uh, that's uh, how we got uh, rolling in, in that regard. And then what was interesting is that, you know, we built that business up um, and we built it up very quickly. Um, and we became quite a, uh, a force to be reckoned with on, on the waterfront. And, and um, there was a company that was owned by a private equity firm that was uh, really trying to uh, encroach on the San Diego waterfront. And we were constantly out maneuvering these guys. And so finally, um, you know, we ran into a few things where we had grown to a point and, and the, uh, you know, uh, the, there were some challenges with the defense industry that were associated with legislation and that just passed the Budget Control Act and sequestration. And so um, it was uh, an opportune time to uh, to unload the company to that private equity firm that was trying to get that market share. And so that's what my partners and I did is that uh, we took that time uh, to sell the organization to, to the um, private equity firm that was uh, run by the former secretary of the Navy, Navy John Lehman. And then they kept me on for uh, a couple years uh, via a contract to um, to uh, help them with government affairs and, and things of that nature. Uh, and, and they uh, took that two years to run the company uh, into the exact same place that I inherited the first time I went over there. So they extended my contract to turn that company back around for them and restore them to profitability, which we did. And then that's uh, how the story goes from there. And that's how I find myself today, um, uh, helping companies uh, find their way uh, back from some difficult times. Even help the Chamber of Commerce uh, yeah. when, when they were going through the big crisis in 2006, 2007, hmm. we were able to lead a team to put them back on their feet. That's amazing. Uh, I want to get back to some of the the business questions and some other things that we're, we're curious about from your life. But there's also a big sort of fundamental piece of the question, piece of the equation, and uh, and the formula that we're we're missing and uh, that I want to get to, which is Jesus. And um, how did you come to to know the Lord and to become a Christian, and um, uh, how that fits into your life and the timeline? Well, I can tell you that as with um, much of my life, uh, you know, until I was uh, introduced to the Lord, I chose to do things the hard way. And when when I uh, decided to um, put that life of crime behind me and, and try and live a life, uh, a decent life, one that my mom could be proud of, um, I, 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 I pursued that uh, relentlessly, Corey. I, I mean, that I wanted so desperately to uh, validate um, that I was no longer uh, that bad guy. And I was now, you know, somebody that 
is a good citizen, um, contributing, responsible, etc. Worked very hard with that as as a goal, and and it was uh, more, uh, you know, pursuing the goals that um, I thought were important. Uh, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, the his and her Mercedes in the driveway. You know, the beautiful home. You know, all all of those things. You know, the high net worth. You know, I went I went after all that stuff. That all that stuff um, was important to me. And then, um, guess what? I got it. Got everything that I was going after, and everything I wanted. And it was like a. It was like. This can't be it. You know, it was, it was, it was just like, I was, you know, sure I, I achieved all the goals, financial, personal, professional, but I find myself in a place where my third marriage is circling the drain. I'm drinking like a fish, you know, and um, I don't have anything in my life that outside of my children that remotely resembles happy. And so um, I think I was, uh, you know, squabbling with my uh, then uh, future ex-wife and uh, was um, talking to my neighbor. He invited me to uh, go down to the bar and Kevin knows this gentleman as well as my friend Jay. He's uh, just recently retired from the San Diego Police Department. He's a great guy, just a, a, a great uh, mountain of a man too, very large dude. And uh, he saw that, you know, I was having some conflict and turmoil. And he says, hey, let's go down to the bar and have a, have a drink. And he, uh, he sent me down uh, and he, we were talking and, and just uh, carrying on. And, and then uh, apparently I was just uh, oiled up enough to where he saw the opportunity to say, hey, why don't, why don't you uh, go to church with me tomorrow? And uh, I, man, I tell you, I don't know what I was thinking, but I said, yeah, okay, sure, yeah, let's do this. And I didn't even um, realize that uh, I, I'd uh, committed to do that. And, and it wasn't until the next morning when I hear this, there's like two sets of pounding going on in my head. You know, there's one that's just, uh, I can know it's from the drinking all night. And then there's another one that's foreign, and I don't know where it's coming from, but it's loud and I realized it's Jay at the front door, bam, 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 you know, let's go to church. And so we went to church because uh, I wasn't about to tell Jay no. And uh, it was interesting uh, when we went to church, you know, I was afraid that, uh, you know, the, the place would just uh, self-destruct me walking into the doors. I figured it'd be hit by lightning um, just because I showed up in there. and. Uh, and it wasn't that way, and, and uh, I went, I went, and the the this, the message that was uh, there that morning was a message that uh, could have been tailor made for me. I felt it was tailor made for me, and that was when I realized that um, there's a lot more to to this life than the the one I was uh, living, and and maybe. You know, my pursuit of uh, the quantity of life was misplaced, and um, there was more to the quality of, of life. 
and and that is how I was uh, introduced to to the Lord by attending um, that one uh, morning with Jay. But because of how that message resonated with me, like all the other things that that uh, I had done in my life, I started pursuing the faith with relentlessly getting as much information. And there was a, just an absolute angel of a man named Paul Risher, who was the integration pastor at the church, who spent I mean, an extraordinarily amount of time with me, meeting with me. We had lunch, we had coffee, and he would talk to me about the message. He would really help me understand, you know, uh, things and just really gave me a very intimate introduction uh, to the faith. And although I'm still, you know, on this journey, um, I can tell you that my relationship with the Lord has been empowering for me because now I know what matters. And it wasn't anything that I thought that mattered. It, I, I, don't, I don't know if, if, that, if that resonates with you or not, but you know, I was focused on empire building. I was focused on um, you know, being who's who and seen and hobnobbing and running elbows with so-and-so and all this stuff that really doesn't matter. And I was really focused on, you know, my own personal net worth and, and keeping up with the Joneses and all this nonsense that people who don't know any better like myself do. And it wasn't until, you know, I, I began my, my walk with Christ that I really realized, you know, what or began to realize what what is important and um, what isn't, and and it's amazing um, when you live a Christ-centered life. You know, you you have happiness that it's it can't be measured in in dollars or positions or titles or anything like that. You know, you have a relationship with the Lord. All of a sudden, things take on a totally different dimension. And then you are successful in all the things that you do because you're walking alongside of them. You know, and then everything, all the struggles go away, become easy. You know, all the things that, that uh, you know, were unclear come into perspective, you know, and now, you know, what matters to me, when I come into a company today to turn um, a company around and, and to restore it to profitability, you know, sure, I have to look at the, the, the consolidated financial statements and and, and look at, you know, the P&L and things like that. I mean, obviously, that's that's uh, step one. But when you, when you folk, that's arithmetic, though, right? We're not we're not splitting the atom when we're looking at a P&L and a balance sheet, right? It's arithmetic. That's the easy part. But when you turn that organization around by changing people's lives, by leading like Jesus, you know, and, and serving, 
you know, I, I embrace servant leadership. And, and when, when I am in an organization and I'm with a team, you know, if that team is not being successful, it's, it's not because of something they've done. It's because I haven't provided them with what they need, the training, the tools to be successful. And so when you focus on an organization and you focus on the people and developing the people, all that other stuff comes effortlessly. It just shows up, so to speak, you know, and, and, uh, and that to me is my focus today is how, you know, can I impact lives in a positive fashion as, as mine has been impacted you know, that, that is the, in the business world, that is, that is the journey I'm on today. Hmm. I mean, what a, a remarkable journey and uh, I appreciate you sharing um, full honesty about um, sort of your walk with the Lord. And uh, it's awesome to hear. And um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed like the way that you presented it in the book, not as like, this is the, you know, uh, it, it felt like a good component of the story and not something that you were, trying to sort of um, cajole someone into, into reading later on, if that makes sense. Um, but it's, it's, again, it's, it's part of everyone's journey. And um, I'm curious also if you can, uh, there, was, there was one bit uh, that sort of intrigued me about the way that you handle business with politics. Not to get into politics in particular, but more just because of your position working with uh, defense contracts and the Navy and the government and sort of having to you know, be up with the times on where money is going and flowing and different policies around um, uh, uh, administrations and, um, yeah, I mean, in general, just where the money is flowing. Um, I was curious if you can give some color on how you think about a business's involvement with politics. Should businesses be involved? Should they have a voice? Should they not? Um, just what your perspective is, given you have a unique position. Well, my perspective is this, is that if you don't want to be in politics, you need to get out of business. <laughs> That's my perspective. Uh, it's, and it's that simple, because I, I can tell you that um, in my industry, it's even, it's even more critical because I work in the defense industry. And so 100% of my revenues come from Capitol Hill comes from Congress. They fund the defense budget every year. Well, maybe not. They try to, right? But sometimes there's a continuing resolution because they don't do their job and that creates a whole other uh, episode of problems we can talk about. But for now, let's just say when, when, when you're um, influenced by your revenues or influenced by politics as the defense budget is, is influenced. I mean, in order to get peace legislation passed like the defense budget and an appropriations act i'll just give you a real reader digest civics lesson here real quick so in order to pass uh, uh, the defense budget the house of representatives 435 people need to pass what's called the national defense authorizations act and an authorizations act authorizes money to be spent then the Senate needs to pass a corresponding piece of legislation, the Senate Authorizations Act. Now, those two pieces of legislation need to be identical in order to be passed 
onto the president and signed into law by the president. Now, getting those two pieces of legislation identical is a Herculean act in and of itself, because getting those folks to agree on things is a huge undertaking. And usually what happens is, is that one chamber passes a version, then the other chamber passes their version, and then they need to reconcile the differences, and then it finally comes out to the other side, and them guys getting this done on time is almost a near impossibility. But then that just authorizes the money to be spent. Then the next evolution is that the budgetary folks need to appropriate the money that has been authorized. So now we go through this whole cycle again with another folks in Congress that are equally as impotent and dysfunctional as the first group, right? So, you know, imagine your time horizon and all of this stuff. And so to make a very long story short, your business is influenced by the efficiency of Capitol Hill. Those two things should not be used in the same sentence, Capitol Hill and efficiency. It just doesn't work that way, right? So as a contractor that focuses on defense work, you need to remain informed as to what those folks are doing to you or what they're not doing to you. Now, let's just remove the defense component and let's say that we're not in defense, but we're just in a uh, regular mainstream business that has nothing to do with federal spending or anything like that. Everything you do as a business is regulated tenfold by somebody in the state of California. You have people that regulate, they, they tax you, they regulate you how you can uh, conduct your business, there's laws, there's employee laws, there's legislation that affects, and all of this stuff you have to not only be aware of, but you, but you have to comply with if it's enacted. And so the, the better part, way to go is to be situationally aware of these things when they're in the pipeline, so hopefully you can influence their outcome before they become law. And the only way you can do that is that if you're involved with politics. Real bad piece of legislation that passed recently with a whole wealth of unintended consequences was uh, targeted against the Uber and Lyft companies. It was called AB5, and it was targeted uh, against uh, the Uber and Lyft guys, the rideshare crowd. That's who the target was in this legislation. And it was a collective bargaining group that that helped the author of the legislation put all this together. But the unintended consequence of that is that it affected every, the entire gig economy. Everybody who played the saxophone in the local bar on Thursdays and Fridays and got a 1099 for that was put out of business as a result of that bad piece of legislation. Anybody who did anything as an independent contractor anywhere in the state of California was put out of business as a result of that bad piece of legislation. And so if you're going to be in business, you absolutely have to have situational awareness of what is happening legislatively. You need to be involved and engaged with your organizations like your chambers of Congress or your industry associations 
better pay attention to what is going on. Cal Chamber is an organization that every year they put out a list of what they call job killer legislation, legislation that they review that they know is going to adversely impact jobs mm. and employers and companies. And so you absolutely have to be involved, Corey. You've got to be paying attention to what those guys are doing. And what's really important is that you got to put your money where your mouth is, right? Because you have to help people get elected that think favorably towards the business community. And how does that work? That means you have to get your checkbook out and you need to donate to their campaigns when you're running for office so that you have a relationship when they get in office because believe me you have to develop and cultivate these relationships because these folks when they get elected to office all they need know how to do excuse me all they know how to do is to run a successful campaign they don't know anything about serving in the office so then who do you think gets access to that brand newly minted state senator or state assemblyman or city council member, who do you think is going to get access for counsel on a sensitive business matter? The guy that supported their election or the person that's just knocking on the door going, hey, I don't like what you're doing here. Listen to me. What, what do you think? Right. So that may be distasteful to many, but that is how the process works. And, and, and I, I think it's an unavoidable um, consequence of being in business that you have to be in politics. Mm -hmm. No two ways about it. Yeah. One, I, I love that perspective. Um, appreciate you sharing that. And one more perspective I wanted to get uh, from you was sort of on the justice system, law, inform law enforcement, uh, reintegration of convicts or ex-cons. Um, just, you know, giving your perspective of where you came from all the obstacles that you had to overcome, having friends come out of the system, or, I mean, in and out of, you know, different systems or different sides of the fence, as you would put it. Um, your thoughts on, I don't know, uh, things that are good about the system today, things that are bad, things you would change, or just things people should be aware of that, that they might not know. Well, I think that, um, you know, we need to be aware of the fact that Anytime somebody's convicted of a felony, it is a life sentence, right? Because now they are branded a felon, and that will forever follow them through their lives. And, and in some places, it'll have an impact, and in other places, it won't. But the, what's important to recognize is that 77 million people in the United States have some sort of criminal conviction. That's a big number, 77 million, right? And we need to recognize that these folks are not second-class citizens. These folks, in fact, in many cases, you know, are, are willing and able to contribute given the opportunity. And most of these folks, in most cases, you know, are, are folks that have, you know, drug convictions and what their crimes were usually associated with supporting their habit. And, and so, you know, you, you, you realize that once a person is, is no longer, um, you know, doing the drugs and, and they're in recovery from that, then their threat as, as, as a criminal is, you know, goes down exponentially as well. Most, most of the folks' crimes are associated with doing the drugs. 
When we send the people to prison, we don't send them there for rehabilitation. That was a brief experiment in the 70s, lasted a couple of years, and it didn't go anywhere. Basically, what we're doing is warehousing people. And, and although we're willing to spend between fifty-five dollars and $100,000 a year to house these people in a warehouse year after year after year, depending on their security level, the higher security level, the more cost is incurred. We as taxpayers are willing to spend that kind of money to lock these people up for a decade or a quarter of a century. But when they get out, we're not willing to spend one thin dime to help re reorientate and re-enter this person into the community and help them transition, right? I think that is a huge, huge issue that we have today. And we, we leave it up to, you know, organizations like Second Chance or our good friend Pastor Harold over at the ECTLC that helps people, you know, put their lives back together uh, after homelessness and, and uh, you know, drugs and whatever. You know, we leave it to the faith community or, or we leave it to, you know, some other select organizations. But we as a society are not willing to make any investments in that. I can, I can tell you that for a fraction of what it costs to incarcerate someone in a minimum security facility, we can probably help at least a dozen folks re-enter themselves into, into society and be quite successful. I think that we're really, really missing the boat on that. And um, it is one of the reasons that re recidivism is so high. And, and that statistic is, is, uh, is where it is at, is because we do not offer people a path to re-entry. Not everybody is as you know, focused and driven and committed as I was, you know, some folks, they, they need um, not a handout, but a hand up. And then in most cases, we will find that the difference between somebody either relapsing or reoffending and going on a good path is a job. That's the deciding factor, whether that person can get a job and, 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 and provide for themselves. That's usually the biggest mitigating factor between whether somebody reoffends or relapses or whether they move forward with their lives successfully. We could do a lot better in that regard. And I'm working really, really hard to, um, to educate people's awareness on that and, and to seek those opportunities for those folks and align with, in fact, um, all the proceeds that I earn from this book, 100% of the proceeds that I earn are going to be uh, donated to organizations like Harold's and Second Chance that specialize in recovery and reentry. Hmm. I will not profit from this. That's awesome. Well, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. Uh, it's been amazing chatting. We really appreciate uh, you spending time with us and sharing stories, sharing your wisdom. Uh, if people want to learn more about you, get involved, get the book free at last, um, how can they follow along and, uh, and get more of you? The, the book free at last is available on Amazon. And then uh, through the book, uh, I think uh, Wes and, and um, 
and his wife are going to help me with this set up a website for the contact information. You guys know I'm technology challenged. Uh, <laughs> comes with my generation, but uh, they're doing. Um, Rena's really amazing, and she's doing a great job in in helping uh, you know organize things in a fashion to where people can get access to me and. You know, I'm I'm willing to to do whatever I can to, to support the cause. I think that uh, you know we're really um, really uh, need to do more as a society for these for these folks, and, and I'm ready to to play a leadership role in this. It's amazing, Marcel. Thank yeah, you thank so you much Marcel. for coming on. It was good, man. Jeff's privilege is mine. Thank you. All right. Well, that was our episode with Mr. Marcel, the hitman. <laughs> <laughs> Quite literally. Yeah. Oh dude. man. If, what um, what a cool guy. Yeah, I think like reading his book. Um, I don't know. As he was talking, I, well, I want to say his book. Uh, they did a really good job. At, like you could read that book and just so easily picture like the um what he was kind of explaining or the the history, the stories. Um, especially like you know living in San Diego when he talks about like the areas of Lakeside and whatnot. Um, it was really fascinating to hear him just talk about like those areas and how it used to be and how it is now. And he's, even as he just kind of shared his testimony, I think it, you know, it, it's so simply uh, worded, just the way it's written. It's very easy to understand and just have like a good imagery of what was happening. And so as we were interviewing him and he was telling these stories, um, just kind of talking about his life, it was it made it even more fascinating. So if you haven't read his book yet, it's called uh, Free at Last, right, Corey? Um but I would encourage you to get a copy of that. It's a super easy read. I didn't finish it yet, but I started it like literally last night and I got to page, I think like 110 uh, in like an hour and a half. So, I mean, it's a pretty easy read. I think it's only like 170 pages long. So it's a really good book. You should read it. Um, yeah, it'll make the podcast even more interesting. Yeah, I love it. I would, I would really, I mean, I probably spent about three to four hours reading and uh, I managed to get through, through it in that time. And it was a very easy read. It's a, it's a page turner, truly. Um, mm-hmm. I was, uh, I wanted to kind of like, I, I wrote a couple notes of some things that I knew that he'd probably undersell himself on, but I just thought we'd give some more color after having heard the interview and also probably pre reading the book, um, that I don't know if you, you caught on to, but just a couple things that like really caught my attention, which was, uh, first of all, was a lot of it was the, the MMA and, uh, and cage fighting. Um, because that, I mean, that was sort of like his whole like foray into sort of like organized crime was being the enforcer for debt collections essentially sort of like the you know the the citizen sort of term that we use for it but um he was he was actually like really really good uh he he mentioned it a couple times but he actually did like a decent amount of cage fighting and did not lose very often if at all i don't think um and he he learned in basically like the garage of a friend's dad who was had been in Vietnam and also learned a lot of martial arts, but I think he learned four different forms of martial arts. Uh, and also like brutally, I mean, he shared one story about how the dad had made a, they basically had him practice like the use of force for certain moves on wooden boards. And, um, I did Taekwondo way back in the day when I was a kid and I had these little, <laughs> I like, forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. They had these little, like, like fake wooden, uh, panels that are like supposed to break if you give them enough force. Yeah, called um like M- MFD or MF something like t- type of wood yeah. that's like yeah particle board whatever. Right, something like that where it's like fairly easy, not going to damage you. Like he was literally they had real forms of wood, and it wasn't like 
oh, like you give it one shot, you know, it, if it doesn't break, it like really like it actually like gives you an injury yeah. because yeah, I mean either either bruised or something cracks or all the force that you put into it gets back onto your body. And he shared one story about how they were practicing um, like an elbow strike into a wooden board and he had to do it over and over and over again. Like he basically, the guy wouldn't let him them stop until they broke it. And he said that by the time that he had broken it, he had hit it like 10 or 20 times and his whole arm was purple. <laughs> and um, like that to me, it just gave me a lot of color to a lot of the other experiences later on where he was very like, the guy was really used to like pain and like resisting stuff and he was tough as nails. And even I think the, when they arrested him from like the kidnapping charge, they sent a 20 man FBI and SWAT team combination <laughs> uh, to his house because he had such a reputation of being uh flash being like actually very, very yeah. dangerous. Um, yeah, there's a this photo of him in the book. I don't know if you saw it, but dude, oh his gosh, arms, yeah. I was like, holy Huge. crap. It was like, I pictured someone that was like strong and big. I, call, I saw a couple of photos online of like his handlebar mustache, you know. And so I thought, okay, this guy's, you know, probably big. But you look, you know, you see him now like um, as an older man. And so then you see that image versus how he was when he was younger. And that one photo of him and, his, and how big his arms were, I was like, oh my goodness. This guy was big. Um, yeah, yeah. You might you know, have been think one of the scariest people I've ever seen, for sure. <laughs> From that picture, yeah, uh, he's like shaved head and just like crazy. He, uh, but he yeah. shares, you know, a lot of his stories. I think you're right. He definitely under like, undersells. I think how like bad he was. Um, you know, I think I don't think he talked about it all in the podcast, but in the book he mentions a lot of the abuse that his dad um, yeah. like, had on him when he was younger, uh, f- physically and just verbally. Um, but I think that that's a guy it's interesting to think how he described himself in a book and how kind and gentle he is now. I mean, we obviously just mm-hmm. had what, an hour with him, so I, we don't know him well, but uh, through reading his book and some of his other interviews and then our interview with him, he's a very like kind hearted man. And it's just interesting to think about like that transformation of how he was once so hard and so like feared and how kind he is now. And even very welcoming. Uh, yeah. He's yeah. a really, he's a really cool man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were some interesting facts um, from his time in prison as well. Um, you know, he mentioned one about sort of how they got so big and strong in the prison was that they basically built and assembled a whole uh, gym for for the prison to to use. But um, two of the stories that really stuck out to me was one. So one of his nicknames was uh, was Flash, and another one was the Tank Captain, because um, this was also when I knew I was like, okay, this guy's for real because basically what they would do is um, on every like block of cells in a prison um, they would, there would be sort of like a guard uh, but then there would sort of be like a person or a, a prison mate, a cellmate who would be sort of like in charge of that block from the guard. So like try to keep the other guys in line. And, uh, and Marcel was that guy everywhere he went, like every single time for every yeah, prison, five different every prisons, block, he was that guy. they yeah. would move him to become the, uh, to become the tank captain yeah. to put other guys in the line because in they were, yeah. yeah, because they were trouble. Um, and man, one of the other ones, this, this was one that was telling Monique last night, uh, that really was stuck out to me. It was just like, I couldn't even imagine was, uh, when he spent time in solitary confinement 
after being beat up by five guys and being stabbed in the face with well, a even before knife. that. So before that, he he was in some area where he explains he was on the like the second tier of the the cell block, yeah. so second story. And I'm not sure what it was. I think he said he was just, you know, lean over the rail. Kind of like you would picture in like a movie that you would see, right? Or yeah. like some documentary about prison. Like that's kind of exactly what happened. But he's sitting there. And then this is, I think, one of his earlier experiences will kind of, I think, instill fear of, of those around him. But uh, three guys jumped him because he was the guy in charge. And I, I guess they wanted control. They didn't like the way he ran things. And I forget what they used, but they had a shank that they made. Um and he described it as like a as like a butter knife, so it was like this dull yeah. piece of metal, basically. And they said that you know two guys uh, on e- on each arm, and one guy just repeatedly stabbing him. I think it was in the in the back or the stomach, but just stabbing him. It was it was in the neck and the face. In the neck was they, that they neck, the neck the and the face? Broke the orbital bone around his eye. Yeah. And this guy freaking fought them all off, and he I'm not sure what he did, but he one of them he tossed over the rail, and the other yeah. two he basically just beat until they they ran away. And then he chased one of them down. One of them tried to run back to his his uh, cell, and as he was closing the door behind him, he grabs his shirt and pulls him out, and and it sounds like he beat him pretty good. And uh, and then later on, like you said, I think he was out in the yard, and five guys jumped him. Um, mm, but they sent five right. guys to go after him, and I'm pretty sure he fought those guys off as well, or at least until the point to where the guards, um, mm-hmm. you know, s- stopped them. But he, it's just crazy to think about those stories, how he can hold off three to five guys by himself. And I'm, I'm imagining these guys in prison are like big, tough guys as, as well, you know? Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Well, I think he said that the only reason why he survived those was because he was so good at martial arts, because a lot of mm-hmm. those other guys were just, you know, brute yeah. force and sort of. Um, you know, just throwing punches from what they have learned sort of on the streets. Um, but man, I, I'd also like, I haven't really heard like a first person account of what it's like to be in solitary confinement, but I think he said that he either spent 18 months or he was, uh, he was supposed to spend 18 months no, it, in it was solitary confinement. Months. It was okay. nine months and it got extended another nine months because right. of that because, assault he had on that one guard. Right. Because he had like to keep himself sane, they give him, they'd give him, been giving him soap, uh, uh, to clean himself and then he had like carved up the soap into chess pieces and they would play chess with he, himself. He like collected it little by little over time, yeah. Yeah. Uh which yeah, I imagine I mean, if you're getting like one bar of soap, I mean it, it must have taken like a few weeks at Months, least to get yeah. like an initial kind of set. And then this one guard who did not like him particularly, uh one day sort of like caught on to it and he smashed it to bits. And um this is what I thought I mean yeah I'm just trying to paint a picture of like how serious he was. Not like that it was like really cool, but just like insane that they actually changed. I don't know if you caught it, but they changed the way that they, uh, that they unlock, uh, um, they put cellmates back in their cell. Yeah. yeah, Once they put them back in their cell, because what they did was they used to do it where you, they would face forward and then they put their arms through the rails and then they would unlock. And so what he did to that guard I think it was the same guard was then he grabbed his wrists and then he used all of his weight to put his feet up against the rails. And then he would just slam his face against the rails repeatedly. Um, and after that, I think they, now they turn them around backwards to be unchained so that they can't do that. Yeah. Which is not, yeah. That, I mean, that full story is that if what he said was how the, the confinement worked is you would spend, geez, I think you said you get one hour a week outside, yeah. right? Yeah, so yeah. you have the whole week just by yourself in a cell block, concrete walls, no windows, no light. You're by yourself. He said literally just uh, like a block to sleep on and then concrete. And, uh, you know, so he finally built his little chessboard. He goes outside for his one hour of week uh, fresh air. And he talks about how you like crave that light. You crave getting out. 
And then he said he walks back in and then he finds his chessboard he just finished destroyed. And uh, the guard that was putting him back in was the one that destroyed it. And so as like the guard is uncuffing him, I'm sure he made some comment or some smirk, which caused him to react that way. Yeah, he said he gave You can him a so look. easily... Yeah, you can so easily picture that. Like the imagery of that situation is very easy to imagine. Um, and then just from what he describes of how he left that guard close to lifeless, it sounds like. I mean, he almost killed him and uh, kind of changed that guard's career. I and mean, he said that that guard from when he came back to work, they wouldn't allow him to come back into the facility. He yeah. was now in charge of staying in, in the tower and just overwatch uh, inmates out, out in the yard. Yeah. On on the business side of things, uh, one thing I wanted to, to bring up was... Um, Sort of, a, you know, I also knew he would sort of unders- undersell sort of the work that he was doing uh, with the defense contracting. Um, one of the cool things I thought was when he was first put sort of in charge. So basically, he was working with this company. He rose up the ranks. They get bought by a private equity firm. And then he gets assigned like an impossible task where they're supposed to repair like basically like an aircraft carrier. I think he said there were 840 units. And um, basically... He was like doomed to fail, like set up. Basically, it was like, okay, well, this guy, you know, he's like getting a new promotion, but he's also getting like the hardest task all year. They had to they had to repair and like refurbish all the entire ship within 30 days, which is like basically unheard of. But he managed to do it because of this really innovative system he called the Tiger Team, where he would like pull together, um, basically like department heads for each stage of. The, the repair and refurbishment um, and then they would be sort of like owners and he would he created like this mini team within a team um, that then like became a normal thing in the industry and he also did something similar where uh, I think he said like in, in the world of real estate which he actually had a lot uh, he did a lot of real estate and he has done a lot of real estate we haven't we didn't really touch on that was that real estate has like a lot of there's like the general contractor and then the subcontractor and that works in the favor of the buyer because then the general contractor is incentivized for the subcontractors to come in at the price that said that they would um, and the time that they said that they would otherwise general contractor would kind of take the fall for that but the sort of like the waterfront industry shipyard didn't have anything like that and so he basically i forget the word that he that they called it but it was like a um it was like a a sub departmental lead or something like that but they basically like created the general contractor model for the shipyard um because of what he saw and that ended up leading them to grow to the 45 person company on the verge of bankruptcy all the way past 500 employees when they sold which was a ginormous sale um and so i yeah i was like wow he's (laughs) he's actually like really really business savvy yeah that's a definite undersell on his end uh that's, that's crazy so from he said from 40 to 500 employees that's when they sold the company yeah. he owned 10 percent, right 30 percent. at that point was it 30 percent? wow yeah yeah so he had uh initially within a year he had gained that first five percent equity and then like he said he and then the second 10%. year he bought an additional five percent he got to buying out a couple of like minority partners and i think that he said by the time that they sold he had owned 33 percent uh, wow. exactly. Did he say what they sold for? Um, no, but he said that he personally walked away with millions. Wow. It's crazy. Uh, what are the five dividends? Um, yeah, I wanted to ask him, but we're sort of running short on time. Um, I guess it's like a talk that he gives. I have, I have no idea, but, um, okay. oh, I knew that, that was something I, that, that I, was yeah, mentioned. I know he, 
I knew about yeah, that talk, but I didn't. I thought you knew what it was. Dang it! We should have no. asked that one. I'm dying to know yeah. now. <laughs> I'll do email yeah. or something. <laughs> that was cool. Um, yeah. Eddie, anything else you wanted to, I guess, touch on? No, I don't think so. I mean, honestly, his his life story is really remarkable. I would encourage everyone to pick up a, bu- a copy of the book, uh, free at last. We'll have a link in the show notes and um, pick up a copy for a friend as well to give out. Uh, I think I'm gonna pick up two, just like have one to talk about and give it to someone else. Um, but great read. Well done, Wes Fulkerson yeah. as well. Yeah. Good stuff. Cool. All right. Well, we'll wrap it there. Uh, of course, as usual, to help out the podcast, if you can subscribe, if you can share it with a friend, uh, if you can get us a rating and review, those will all go a long way. Let us know what you thought, and we'll see you in the next one.